Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank Schward Consulting for sponsoring this episode. Schward Consulting is a leading solar consulting firm dedicated to design, engineering, and owner's representation in all areas of solar photovoltaics for the commercial, industrial, and utility markets. Thank you again for sponsoring the podcast. You guys are in the forefront with doing solar and storage, and those are great trends that you mentioned, and I'm sure there are many more, but those are definitely huge ones that people are talking about. Hello, and welcome to the Solar Maverick Podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangen, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm excited for this episode. I'll be interviewing Manish Nair. He's the founder and managing partner of Oya Solar. Oya Solar is a leading solar developer of community, commercial, and utility-scale projects. With a project pipeline of 600 megawatts, Oya Solar is proud to be contributing to a better future. Founded in 2009, Oya has a strong track record of delivering solar projects to provide the best levelized cost of energy across North America. The company is based in Toronto, Canada, and we're here at their beautiful office in New York City. They have in-house development, permitting, engineering, and project finance teams, which de-risk their projects and maximize execution certainty. Manish has led the growth of the company and its resulting 1,000-plus megawatt development pipeline. He's also developed and constructed and transacted over 500 megawatts of solar assets in the last 10 years. Prior to Oya, Manish was with the investment banking group at Merrill Lynch. Prior to Merrill Lynch, he was the CEO of Judrix Enterprise, which is a global tier one supplier of powertrain and transmission components to the automotive and heavy equipment industry. He holds an MBA from Kellogg School of Management. He also has a BSc in computer engineering, BSc in applied mathematics from University of Western Ontario. He's also a licensed professional engineer in the province of Ontario. And Manish, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Benoit. It's really great to be on. Yeah, thank you. I listen to your podcast a lot, so this is an honor. Yeah, and I appreciate you being on the podcast. I think you'll provide really a great perspective with all your experience in solar, working first in the Canadian market and then really building a development pipeline aggressively in the U.S. market. And then also to get your experience and perspective as an entrepreneur. And I'm excited. I know we've been trying for the last two to three months. And thank you for making time out of your busy schedule when you're here in New York. No problem at all. It would be great. I know I gave a brief description about Oya. Can you go into more description about the company and what made you start Oya Solar? Sure. So Oya has been in the market now for almost 11 years. We'll be celebrating our 11th anniversary this summer. We started as a rooftop developer in Ontario under the auspices of the Feed and Tariff program that started there in 2009. I founded the company actually a little bit by accident. (laughs) I was looking to leave investment banking and uh, given my significant experience in the manufacturing sector, I want to start a clean tech VC fund focused on actual products. And I'd been speaking with a small wind turbine manufacturer and I thought, well, we could probably make these wind turbines in Ontario at our at our manufacturing facilities. And one thing led to another. And I thought, well, we should maybe see if we can sell these wind turbines in Ontario. And of course, we couldn't. But that had led me to the feed and tariff program as part of the Green Energy Act. And I spent a lot of time digging in and learning more about solar 
And I made a pivot and just moved home the next month, quit my job as a banker and, and started Oya. Yeah, that's an amazing story. And at that time, the feed-in tariff was very lucrative it incentive was. for uh, Ontario. And then I think you are also owning projects as well. So not just developing and constructing, but then owning projects, which is pretty amazing. That's right. We had the benefit in Canada and in Ontario of not having a, an investment tax credit as part of our capital stack. So it was a nice clean equity debt structure. And the government's 20-year contract made it very attractive, of course, to find both equity and debt in the market. And so we started as a rooftop developer and, and slowly transitioned into the ground mount market until we saw the market start to close. We foreshadowed that the market would slow down and ultimately close as the government incentives we're starting to step down pretty drastically. So that's when we pivoted to the U.S. So that's interesting because obviously in the U.S., it used to be the 30% cash grant before it became the investment tax credit. And obviously the investment tax credit is stepping down. Do you have a, I've heard a lot of people who have a preference of not having an ITC because it'll just simplify the transaction. And I know you're a yes. finance expert and obviously that's something that you experienced with the feed-in tariff where it was a lot easier easier to finance. Do you think it'll be easier to finance projects, especially when the ITC steps down is not as substantial part of the value stack of the different equity sources for projects? Or, I mean, obviously you would prefer the investment tax credit because it helps the economic perspective. For sure. Yeah. I think there'll be a bit of a push and pull because you'll still have the ITC as part of the capital stack going forward, albeit on a much smaller level. It may make conversations with tax equity a lot easier given that it ultimately will just be worth a tenth of the project value. If we're putting the economics aside, I think it would be more beneficial for us as developers and owners, but perhaps maybe less attractive for tax equity investors. So I wonder if the pool or ultimately the transaction costs of of entering into these types of structures would still be a motivational. What I should say is I wonder if they'll still be motivated to enter into structures, given how complicated the structures are for just a little sliver of the structure, maybe much bigger portfolios and deal sizes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point because, you know, as Manisha is saying, basically the ITC eventually this year in 2020, it's 26%, but then eventually it's going to be a permanent 10%. And obviously to structure these transactions, there's a cost to it and brain damage. And for smaller transactions, it might not make sense. As you said, it might be an aggregation or portfolio of assets right. to make it happen. So that that's a great point. Just going back, it would be great to hear about more of the stuff that you've done in the U.S. I know you talked about the feed-in tariff in Ontario, but I know you had a 100-megawatt project portfolio that you developed in Minnesota and New York that you sold. Can you talk more about that portfolio? What got you attracted to those two markets? I know you mentioned as well their community solar projects. Right. Can you talk more about that sort of first project portfolio that you developed, which was, I guess, started like five years ago? or Five, almost six years ago now. Wow. Yeah, it's been a long time. A long journey. <laughs> so when we were looking to leave the Canadian market and find our first market to focus on in the U.S. and really learn the market well, we decided to go to Minnesota because at the time, the solar rewards program that was being administered by Excel seemed pretty interesting for us because there was a lot of parallels in terms of the development process in Ontario and Canada more broadly and Minnesota. We also saw a number of Canadian players go into the Minnesota market at the same time, equipment vendors, painting manufacturers, et cetera. And, and so there was a level of comfort for us going there. We were also really attracted to community solar 
in general because it allowed us to develop the project before we had the subscriptions or PPAs in place. So it gave us comfort that our dollars wouldn't be wasted and that as we were developing the projects, we could take our time to find the right off-takers for the project. We developed that project over a period of almost three years. There was a lot of starts and stops in the program structure and design that we worked through, but we were successful. We got about 35 megawatts to the finish line and sold. The last project actually was constructed sometime in 2018. We then moved to New York. We felt that the size and the scale of the market was really attractive, and we felt that we had a good differentiating factor in our development process. And of course, it was adjacent to us being based in Toronto, Ontario. We were also really excited about Rev in general and specifically the the big targets that New York had in the initial programs. And frankly, the fact that they've continued to get bigger as time has gone on over the last few years. And so we developed a portfolio here in New York and over half of that portfolio is already built. And we hope that the rest of it will be built this year. And then we, of course, continue to develop dozens more megawatts here in the state and in the Northeast. Yeah, that, that's really interesting to know. And I thought it was interesting before the podcast interview, you were talking about how development has changed so much when you first started in Minnesota and New York, Minnesota, I know six to seven years ago to now. Can you talk about that, especially when it relates to, I know you're doing a lot of community solar projects, but you're also, I know, doing utility scale as well in New York. It would be great to get your perspective. Yeah, I think development has matured a lot in this space. I think developers have gotten much better at anticipating the needs of the community and the stakeholders outside of just the municipality or the county or the state. You know, when you think about what neighbors are looking for and and other factors, whether it be talking about pollinator-friendly plants or integrating solar with general farming techniques, et cetera, I think we as developers are starting to talk more and try and integrate more of that feedback into our development on a go-forward basis. I think community solar itself has evolved a lot if we're talking about developing community solar projects. Minnesota was interesting in that we felt that the program structure was solid one in that we would be able to attract a lot of attention from tax equity and financing parties. And what we found was really that what we started off as a community solar market turned off into a turned into a uh, multiple corporate offtake on one project model. And that's how folks got comfortable initially five or more CNI investment grade offtakes on a project without any residential component. And then of course, over time, developers and some financing parties got started to get comfortable with the residential component. But even at that, they were still looking for full term residential subscription agreements. And then over time, we started to see even the residential subscription agreements slow down from or reduce in tenor from 25 years to maybe 10 years to maybe five years. And now fast forward in New York, and we're talking about no term contracts for residential subscription and, and even for CNI mass market subscriptions, we're not talking about 25-year terms. Maybe it's 15 or 10 or 5, depending on where we are in New York State. So we've really seen uh, the model evolve, and I think to customers' benefit, and I think we've seen financing parties also get really comfortable 
with these types of tenors on these subscription agreements. Yeah, that's pretty amazing how the tenor has changed so quickly in such a short period of time. I know you're very focused as well with community solar, with the LMI community, low moderate income housing. Can you talk about what's Oya's strategy and why it has been a focus? Yes, I think that when we talk about community solar, we're talking about a lot of things. We're talking about good siting techniques to keep the cost low. For example, interconnecting somewhere that allows a more efficient interconnection cost. But we're also talking about things on the other side of the equation, like increasing access to those that otherwise wouldn't be able to have the benefit of buying clean energy. And traditionally, we think about that as, well, your roof structure wasn't good enough at your home or your shingles weren't good or you had or you had some trees shading your potential solar array. But it also means that those that would typically not even have the chance to look at those options can now also buy power. And, and that's really the LMI community. So it allows them to make a choice and have agency over that. And also, more importantly, when we think about the total population, there's not a lot of people that have a 700 FICO score or 650 FICO score or better. This is really democratizing solar for all of us. And so LMI is a key component to that. And so we think that we have to be part of the solution to solve it. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, to basically have equal access of solar and not a 650 or 700 credit score to be able to access it. And I think it's been interesting because you're now seeing uh, certain states that have an LMI requirement right, for like New Jersey, solar. for example, New Jersey, Maryland. And I think that's going to be something that's just going to be obviously for the government and politicians to subsidize these programs that they're going to have an LMI component. And it's great to hear that OI has been very focused on finding those opportunities. I know as well, you're focused on developing projects and affordable housing, which is great. That's right as well so and we're looking for buy-in from the whole community right we're not just looking for buy-in from the stakeholders of the project or the community that can afford to buy the projects because they've got good credit scores we're we want the entire community engaged and we want the entire community to benefit. Definitely. That's huge, especially in affordable housing. I know we've talked before, like we're developing a project with the New York Housing Authority right. and a certain component is LMI, LMI offtake because you want the community involved. So that's great to hear. And you mentioned community solar projects that you're focused on in these states, but you also do utility scale development. I know you have some early stage projects where you have uh, land control what got you to focus on utility scale projects as well? I know you do rooftop, pretty much right. do everything, right? We do. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> this is a solar business. Yeah. <laughs> I think utility is interesting for us. It's a piece of the puzzle. Community solar projects represent more near-term development for us. And we think we can add a lot of value on the utility side as well. Coming from Ontario, REA process which is similar to New York's Article 10 process, really taught us oh, how, to, how to develop utility-scale projects in a really structured way. And so when we came here to New York, we realized that Article 10, it's pretty close to the REA process that we already had to follow. So it, it's in our DNA already in terms of how we develop even our DG projects or community solar projects. And so we like utility scale projects. We think there's an opportunity to work with some of the same anchor subscribers, the typical CNI investment grade subscribers to offer them more than one choice. Because again, community solar is all about providing choice. And we think it's great to be able to offer a credit to a subscriber in a market, but it would also be great to provide more power to, for their needs at the wholesale level. For example, on a long-term contracted 
PPA with maybe a rec attached. And also that creates more additionality for the solar market in general, which is important for us. And, and on the rooftop side, in a very similar way, if we have a subscriber, we want to service them as much as we can and give them as many options as we can. And that's what plays into the CNI projects that we're looking at doing as well. Yeah, definitely. And I guess the Article 10 process that you're referring to in New York, if it's 25 megawatts or above, it has to go through another, the Article 10 process, right? Which then there's additional sort of information and processes. And I think it's usually what an, takes a longer period of time as well to get the project approved, like usually an extra year, I think. Or more than a year. More than a year. I, I think the typical process is three years. Oh, wow. And, and it's the catch-all process to permit any sort of power project development. And there are some changes that I hear are yeah, upcoming. To, Governor to Cuomo announced yeah. something recently to help streamline that process for renewable projects. But in general, it's a fairly lengthy process with a lot of community and stakeholder input. It is a little daunting, I think, for some developers, but it's something that we're used to doing. That's really interesting because I know I was hearing a lot of developers shying away from that process and then doing community solar and co-locating four sites at five megawatt AC so that they wouldn't have to go through the article process, but this is like a competitive advantage because you have the expertise and the patience. And Right. And, and not all sites work for a utility scale project that might be 20 megawatts or larger and, and not all sites work as community solar projects. So it's nice to be able to, to find a solution for projects. Like yeah. That. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I would like to thank Schwerd Consulting for being the sponsor for this episode. Schwerd Consulting is a leading solar consulting firm dedicated to design, engineering, and owner's representation in all areas of solar photics for the commercial, industrial, and utility markets. At Schwerd Consulting, they like to say, we know solar, we don't just do solar. What sets them apart is their 100% focus on solar and understanding the business of their clients. In its five years of business, Schwerd Consulting has provided services for approximately 450 megawatts of PV across over 330 sites and 15 states plus the Caribbean. That total includes 300 megawatts of completed designs and engineering and 150 megawatts of consulting and owner rep services. Let Schwerd Consulting take the burden off you and bring ease and expertise in all areas of engineering and design or help you navigate the technical world of solar. If you're interested in learning more about Schwerd Consulting, you can call at 215-219-6718 or email at admin at schwerdconsulting.com. Schwerd Consulting website is www.schwerdconsulting.com. We'll also have this information as well in the notes of the podcast. Steve Schwerd, who's the owner of Schwerd Consulting, was interviewed on episode 17 and 48 of the Solar Maverick podcast and also episode 42, which was a panel discussion on how solar technology is changing the world. Thank you to Schwerd Consulting for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. And I know we've spoken a lot about the projects that you've been developing in Minnesota and New York, obviously Canada. What other markets are you looking to develop solar projects? We're really active in the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic right now. We're really excited about some of the new upcoming markets like Pennsylvania, which we feel could be a very strong market for renewables over the next five to 10 years. Also New Jersey. We hope that the pilot program gets expanded and <laughs> and there's some more fluidity to the development timelines and the process there. Uh, Maine is a market that we're active in right now. And we're looking to a few of the other Mid-Atlantic and, and the smaller Northeast markets on a one-off basis. 
I guess you're developing projects, but then you have future goals of potentially owning projects or creating a fund. I mean, is that something? I think that's something that we're, we're looking at on the horizon. Yeah. I think to some extent we've established ourselves as a real player in the community solar space. Of course, we've been selling projects to long-term asset owners at NTP or shortly after. We're now looking to what's next for us. And I think that that's probably a two-year, three-year plan. And so you don't con- really construct the projects? Sometimes we do. Okay. We do. We, we certainly have that capability in-house. In Ontario, we constructed and owned everything that we built or that we developed, I should say. And of course, over time, we started to sell those assets down to long-term owners, but we do retain that that full capability in else. Oh, that's great. I know you talked about this a little bit. You talked about some trends you were seeing in the development of when you first started developing projects in the U.S. and now. What trends are you seeing in the solar industry? There's so many. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest, I think, that we're seeing right now is storage. I really believe that that storage prices are going to follow the same trend as module prices. And I think we're, we've started to see that. It's interesting that the 65 megawatts that we developed in New York as of last summer, we were able to successfully pair all of those projects with storage. So over 200 megawatt hours of storage uh, that'll hopefully all be built this year in 2021. Sure. That's something that we didn't even think about in 2018, which was just two years ago. And we're looking at pairing storage with a lot of our CNI projects. I think one of the other trends that we're seeing is solar in markets you would never think of penciling are starting to pencil because the costs are coming down and frankly, utility rates are going up in some places. So we're seeing some states in the Midwest where we're actually starting to sign PPAs where we wouldn't have never thought of going. Of course, electrification in general is a trend. All these states in the Northeast that are signing on to 100% electrification targets are really just going to enable more innovation in the distributed grid. And that means more solar, more storage, more innovation in in terms of grid architecture. And so I think that we're just coming into a period of extreme change. Definitely. I mean, this is all exciting stuff. It's basically disruption of the traditional electricity industry. and, And it sounds like you guys are in the forefront with doing solar and storage. And those are great trends that you mentioned. And I'm sure there are many more, but those are definitely huge ones that people are talking about. It would be great. This podcast is about solar and entrepreneurship. (laughs) (laughs) The Solar Maverick podcast, episode 70. It would be great to get your perspective on what made you become an entrepreneur. And you're telling me a little bit about your story beforehand. It'd be great to get. I I think I uh, had no choice but to be an entrepreneur, to be honest with you. I grew up in a house with a family business. My father started this business almost 50 years ago. So being in grade school or in high school, my father would hire myself and, and one or two of my friends. Uh, in grade school as early as grade four, grade five to come work in, in the factories and sort through tools and, and help organize and, and learn the business. And so just through that period of my young adult life, just being in the mix in the business environment and being able to just learn through osmosis and, and frankly, through being really involved in the business when I was older, I think it was just an inevitability that I wouldn't really be able to go work a regular finance job. I think I just had to be an entrepreneur. That's a great. I'm sure, you know, being involved in working with your family's business and your dad's business since a young age, you've taken a lot of that uh, when you started Oya. Absolutely. 11 years ago, the summer. So that's, that's amazing. Uh, what advice would you have for someone who wants to get into entrepreneurship? It's pretty tough. Entrepreneurship in the 
the solar industry is, yes, is especially yes, trust. Definitely. So maybe my first, uh, <laughs> maybe my first piece of advice was don't be an entrepreneur in the solar industry. Uh, just joking. Uh, it's been great. Yeah. The highs are really high, and sometimes the lows can be really low. But you know, you just have to have a lot of perseverance. And as an entrepreneur, you have a vision for what you want your company to be and for what you want to do. And and I think regardless of what you hear from other people, if you're really committed and dedicated to it, you'll make it happen. Just you got to stick with it and uh, don't be afraid to ask for help or advice. Those are the three tidbits, I guess, I would leave your listeners with because a lot of people can sometimes feel like, I know, I know the answers. I think an entrepreneur can know their vision and they can see what they want to build. It's tough to ask for help sometimes or advice. So that would be my main advice to any potential entrepreneurs out there. That is great advice. And I thought it was interesting too that you invest in different like energy and renewable energy businesses because, you know, I as well invest in different things. It would be great to understand like what got you interested in investing in businesses outside of Oya Solar? We're really interested in that. We recognize, I recognize that we can't be everything. We're really good at what we do and we see opportunities in other places. And sometimes back to being an entrepreneur, I have a vision or, or the company has a vision of what we want to be in the future. And, and we know that we may not be able to invest in, in that thing at the moment. And so it presents an opportunity for us to perhaps invest in someone else who can build that. And at some point in the future, we can come together either as an acquisition or, or through some form of partnership in the future. It's just our way to really help grow the value in, in our business and in others' business and in the industry in general. So we're, we're super interested in, in looking at opportunities that are tangential to ours, uh, to our business or in areas that we're looking to get into in the future. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. It sounds like it's more of like a partnership and potentially, you know, figuring out a way of a deeper partnership after the investment has been made with collaboration. So that's pretty amazing. And there's a lot of innovation and there's a lot of innovation <laughs> yes. that, that's already happened. That's going to happen, happen now yeah. as a result. And there's a lot smarter people out there, I think, that can tackle <laughs> some of the problems that we're seeing. And, and we want to help enable that. Sure. That's amazing. This has been an amazing interview, Manish. I appreciate your time. If people wanted to learn, our listeners wanted to learn more about Oya Solar, what's, where's the best way? Is it the website? The website would be the best way, oyasolar.com or any of our social channels, our, our page on LinkedIn or or on Facebook, uh, where a lot of our community stakeholders find us and get updates. Or you can uh, contact us by phone and just ask for myself or someone else in the origination or finance team. Yeah. And then as well, if, if people wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them? Email. Yeah. Uh, Manish.Nair at OyaVentures.com. Great. And yeah, so this has been an amazing interview. Do you have any questions for me or? Well, my first question is, how come I'm podcast 70? And, uh... <laughs> We've, I, I apologize. It took 70 episodes to get Manish on the podcast. I think I've asked a while in passing in conversation. You have. I'm, I'm glad and we got then, to yeah, definitely. make this work today. But how about Renew? What are you guys up to in 2020? And what are your big plans for the next year or two? I think it's, you know, the same as everyone else's is really to get up to speed with storage and coupling storage and solar and standalone storage. We think there's a lot of opportunity, especially like in the city. So we're, you know, obviously close to New York City. So we're trying to figure out ways of coupling and, you know, growing the company and, you know, finding great partners and also looking at like 
more utility scale development, not just rooftop. That's great. I hope you call us. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I will be calling you. <laughs> well, thank you, Manish. I appreciate it again. Thanks, Benoit. It was great to be on. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at reneuenergy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown. <laughs>